the Foghorn. My name is Mark Taluki. This is your official Around the Foghorn podcast. We're getting this restarted with new hosts. I do want to give a shout out to Daniel Sperry and Vince Sestone, who got this started, but it ended back in 2018, a couple years later. Um, I'm now in charge. I'm now a co-side expert alongside Jeff Young, and we're trying to get this thing back kickstarted. And because it's my first episode at the helm, I wanted to have my father, the original Giants fan in the fa- in the family, Michael DeLuke, on um, to review this Giants season. So thanks for coming on, Pop. I'm happy to be here, Mark. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity because, as you know, we don't always agree um, on things with regard to the Giants. My relationship with the Giants is much less analytical and much more love-hate. So, but um, yeah, thank you for having me on. I look forward to this. I appreciate you taking um, the time with it. So, you know, jump right in. Again, we're recording this Saturday afternoon. This will go up um, Sunday morning before the ALCS and NLCS get kicked off. But obviously for the Giants, their season ended uh, a couple weeks ago at this point. And it was, I think you'd agree with, of a disappointing ending in the microcosm. It was disappointing at the end to not make the postseason. But when you took a step back, it was a pretty productive year that I think exceeded both of our expectations. Um, yeah, yes, but, but parts of it. I mean, certainly um, overall, I was pleasantly surprised with the season um, and the fact that, well, again, because of the new playoff structure, I mean, part of it, I'm kind of cynical because if we went with the previous playoff structure, the Giants really wouldn't have been in, in the mix there, uh, but they were. And so I think in that sense, it made those games more meaningful, which was fun because I think most of us didn't think we'd be playing many meaningful games, you know, after the first 20 or 30 in this, this shortened season. Yeah, definitely. What was your, you know, biggest, or I guess your favorite sort of surprise from this season? Well, for me, it was the offense. I mean, both the overall productivity of the offense, both in terms of power and, and run production, that was a, a pleasant surprise. I mean, I thought the offense would be improved in part because some of the moves we made, uh, signing Wilmer Flores, um, who had, who's been a productive player, particularly in a platoon role, and had a big season with Arizona last year, and of course, killed the Giants. <laughs> But also the um, resurgence, really, of Belt and Crawford, both of whom got off to a very slow start, but then picked it up uh, tremendously. And that was a, a, a pleasant surprise, along with uh, uh, Evan Longoria. Though Longoria faded a bit uh, during the end of the season, he also had, a, I think, up until probably the last, 20 games or so also had a, a very good season. Yaskrimski, I mean, that was a bit of a surprise, but again, he was a pleasant surprise the year before. So seeing him further develop was, was nice, but that wasn't a t- totally surprising. Yeah. I think to sort of cut you, you off a bit there is that the thing about Yastrzemski is that, he, you know, last year could have been a fluke. And I think the, the big thing about this season was, is he a guy who you're looking at as an everyday player going forward? And, the way he played, you might be able to look at him and say he actually might be a foundational piece going forward. Now, again, I think it's fair to say he's going to regress it, but he's probably not, you know, on par with Tatis as he was with like war this year. But it, it does seem to suggest that, OK, he's a potential, you know, at least an above average everyday player, which the Giants, there was really a lot of skepticism, I think, coming into the year about 
where that would come from. I think even someone who, frankly, I was low on coming into the year, low on throughout, but did pick it up at the end was Mauricio Dubon, too, playing every day in center field, aside from the strange defensive struggles in the infield, but then the surprising, you know, really exceptional defensive play in center field. But the bat at the end of the season was really picking it up and ended up putting together also a solid year that says he might actually be able to be a at minimum 300, 400 at bat type guy, even if not an everyday player too. Yes. Yeah, so I think what I was reading the other day is that Dubon hit almost 350 against left-handed pitching. What that tells me um, is that he's best in a platoon role, not exclusively, as I say, for defensive reasons in center field, but I would like to see him get more time at shortstop despite his struggles earlier in the year historically, at least in the minors and even in the last season, he held his own at shortstop. I think that rest would serve Brandon Crawford well. And also, I would like to see Crawford face right-handed pitching more and uh, less against left-handed pitching. Um, that would be, I think, a way of take advantage of, of, of Dubon's versatility. But I, I was pleasantly surprised with how he did in center field. But I think I'd be willing to give up some defense in center field by whatever, having Yaskrimski go over and play center field against a right-handed pitching. Hopefully Austin Slater will be able to, you know, that him and Dickerson would, would be healthy enough that we could have a left-handed hitting outfield mm -hmm. with some combination of Yaskrimski, whether it's Yaskrimski in center, uh, Dickerson in left. Um, and, and again, we, you know, we'll see what, what plays out mm -hmm. um, in, in the offseason. But I don't know if I want to see Dubon, and I'm confident of him being the everyday center fielder that he would play every day, particularly against, against right-handed pitching. Yeah, and sort of to move to a guy who his his future place on the roster and in the lineup, I think, is kind of up for debate. I I don't think it's necessarily easy to tell where Darren Ruff fits going forward, if it's in a platoon role, if it's you know, a, a bench bat, because he seemed to, I mean, his bat was playing like he's worthy of an everyday spot. But if you have Belt and Flores solidified at first, you have Dickerson and Slater and Yastrzemski. And if Dubon is the center fielder, he might be an odd man out. But regardless, I think he's probably the biggest surprise for me just because, again, he goes over to the KBO after, you know, having a solid minor league career being, you know, passable to mediocre with the Phillies before going over and then coming over. And early in the season, as you were someone who pointed this out to me, he wasn't hitting a lot of homers, but he was still, you know, hitting the ball hard, getting base hits, getting some doubles. And then towards the end of the year, you saw that turning into four base, four base power as well. Yes. And I think if hopefully, I mean, I don't like the DH, but I don't like the leagues having different rules. So that being the case that it's unlikely the American League is ever going to give up the DH. Hopefully they'll make it permanent that the DH will now be in the National League. And I think um, him in the DH role, you know, so for example, against left-handed pitching, you could have floors at first base, right, where Belt sits against left-handed pitching. And then you could have Ruff, you know, as the DH. Mm -hmm. Again, we had to do that with Slater this year, particularly over the last month or two, because Slater couldn't play the outfield. So I'm assuming that Slater would be able to play the outfield against left-handed pitching. Yeah, and of course we still all these guys are under team control, but they're still an off season two of potential additions and whatnot. Or yeah, I don't think we're going to see necessarily any two major trades from the big league roster. Right, but I, I think was, that's possible as well. Yeah, and there's also you can get somewhat. I saw that apparently Flores kind of held his own at second base. I go, but that you know you have uh, 
Solano there at second base as well. I think what we do know for sure is that Flores and Solano cannot play third base. At least yeah. we need, and I think even uh, Zaidi's talked about this, we need somebody, ideally a left-handed hitter, who can play some third base. Because again, I think uh, Longoria, while in his career, he hasn't had extreme splits. Apparently this year, he, he did have splits. He really hit left-handed pitching uh, very well. So just to give him some rest to have someone who can play third base, ideally a left-handed hitter. Um, I know there's been talks about, um, is it Tommy LaStella, the one that the A's mm-hmm. picked up? Yes, yes. Who His hit the, the walk-off homer off got with the A's. Right. And uh, now, again, he probably would want to be a full-time player, although he can play second base and third base. He would probably get That's plenty true. of at-bats because he could also spell Solano at second base when we want to go with a left-handed hitting lineup. Yeah, and by the way, this season, and again, small sample this season, so probably you're better off looking at the career numbers, but this season it was really stark. And 56 plate appearances against lefties. Longoria hit three of his seven homers. Mm-hmm. He hit 308 with a 340 on base and a 520 slugging. Right. Against righties, he hit 230 with a 280 on base and a 390 slugging. So you're yeah. talking about nearly a 200-point gap in OPS bases. The lefty right now, here's my question to you, I guess, off of that. You mentioned a left-handed hitter who could play third base. Do or second you, base. And, right. Yeah, and second. I think LaStella, that's what, if he could play, because he can play second and third. Right. I guess here's my question to you. Do you think Brandon Crawford could spell Longoria at third base? Uh, well, again, the do the Giants think he can? Fair. My guess is they probably don't. I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to that. But the problem is, if he's spelling Longoria, I mean— Crawford needs rest, too. I mean, yes, I think we know right. from history um, that Bochi overused Crawford and he wore down over the season. Now, when I say that he overused him because in many cases we didn't have a viable alternative, although Solano actually in that w- one season held his own at, at, at shortstop. So if Crawford's playing shortstop against right handers and then he's also, you know, playing third base. I just think there'd be other alternatives. I wouldn't be opposed to giving that a shot. But given the demands at shortstop, right, it's a tougher position to play. Just The know, reason ter- I, I bring that up, and this is kind of spoiling my lead a bit because I haven't written this article yet, but it will be going up in the next few days. Actually, it might be up by the time this podcast is up. But I don't think it will be. Is a guy who's a free agent, sort of the biggest name hitter free agent, who I think would be an intriguing fit because I think he's going to want a short-term deal and I think he can fit a lot of these flexibility needs, is Marcus Simeon. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think the A's are going to offer him a qualifying offer, given the state of the market, given he did have a difficult year. He didn't play particularly well. But he's a really strong defensive shortstop, so he gives you that flexibility to, if you want to kick Crawford over to third occasionally to give Longoria a day off, but also if you want to give Crawford a day off against lefties, you can have Simeon play shortstop. You know, Solano was a good defensive second baseman last year, but I think he wants some defensive insurance, and Simeon would definitely, I think, have that potential as well. So I think he's a guy I'm keeping my eye on and sort of wondering where, you know, maybe that left-handed third baseman to spill, spell Longoria isn't there, but I wonder if there's a competent enough shortstop to make the Giants consider, well, maybe we can give Crawford 10, 20 games at third base, you know? Yeah, I can see that. I, I guess in terms of, you know, assuming that Simeon would... One is how big of a one-year contract would I be willing to give him? Fair. I 
don't think I want to give a big multi-year because I don't think the Giants are a, a year away. In other words, Crawford and Belt, as we know, are going to be a free agent after 2021. So I would be more interested in, you know, short term. So if Simeon was willing to come in on a one-year deal, but if LaStella was inter- was willing to come in, you know, on a cheaper one-year deal, then maybe Simeon. Or would you, or like a Flores type? A Flores, two, three yeah, years, I think, six, eight million. Yeah, I think that might be wishful. I mean, we got Flores, I think, on a two-year, six million, and we have a club option for yep. a third, I think. Yep. But the market maybe not, you know. Yeah, it's looking like it's going to be pretty dire with team spending. And yeah. the other thing to keep in mind is, from what reports have been, not only are teams going to be hesitant to spend in free agency, they're also going to be quite aggressively non-tendering guys, right. which means there might also, there's probably going to be a larger supply of guys who are free agents, you know, competing mm-hmm. with one another for that money too. Right. Yeah. And I think with, you know, for the next year or so, um, as I say, I don't think the giants want to give, multi-year con when i mean three four year contracts mm-hmm. to guys who are in their 30s which i yeah. believe both simeon and Lestella are so i i like the idea of a probably i would prefer Lestella in part because of the, the cost and then that isn't th- there's going to come a time i think in the near future where the giants are going to have to be willing to spend you know probably on on starting pitching but that might not come until a- after this this next season yeah. I think one of the things that I I don't have – it would be interesting to look at some of the analytics. I'm wondering if part of Longoria's success against left-handers is sort of a synergistic thing where when we go with these platoon lineups, right, he's hitting better against lefties because pitchers are fa- – facing all these right-handed hitters that's a good point you know what i'm saying so he may be getting better pitchers to hit because they you know whether it's because of slater we you know we know hits mm-hmm. righties and, and right. some of those other things you had and flores and you know what we were seeing right flores you had flores you had rough your lies and the other thing too we know right is that hitters historically almost always do better with runners on base than with no one on right and he was probably that's the other thing to look at in that split too is you know it's a small sample size so if if more guys were, if he was more likely to be batting with a guy on base, the pitchers out of the stretch, out of their comfort zone. That's a good point too. Right. Yeah. And, and so as far as Crawford over at third, as I say, I, I would be open to that. But with both Crawford and Belt, to say it, to me, as good as they did, it, and it was pleasantly surprised. I'm not sure that's sustainable over 162 game season for two reasons. One is I would want them to get more rest. Because I think both of them have dealt with injuries, particularly Belt, but Crawford historically has wore down. So I think the platoon situation could work if Dubone can play some shortstop. And as we talk about, Flores could play some first base. That gives uh, Belt and Crawford rest. And also, I think you want to put players in a position to, to be at their best. And both Crawford and Belt are better hitting against right-handed pitching. So to to minimize that, because we did see that as the season went on, Crawford started to fade a bit, I think, when he was playing more against left-handed hitters. Uh, Let's not forget that while Belt finished the year hitting over 300, Crawford was up over 300. But by the end of the season, I think he was down to 260. And I think that was in part because Kapler was playing him against all pitching. Mm -hmm. And I understand that because he he was doing well. But I think over 162-game season, that's when I would like to see Dubone 
who we noted earlier, hit three, nearly 350 against right-handed pitching, that Dubon gets some um, games at shortstop against left-handed pitching. Yeah. And so sort of looking to sort of the, the opposite side of the Giants, what was your biggest disappointment this year? Well, the first disappointment is obviously Kapler as a manager. Uh, let me say, first his hiring and then his bullpen management. I suppose that wasn't a surprise, but it was a disappointment. So let me just say that. That said, in terms of player performance, um, I would say it was Cueto and Samarja. Mm-hmm. Now, again, with Samarja, there was an injury thing, but um, I, I just thought Cueto would be better, even in his time that he came back last season with a few starts. The results were mixed, but when he was good, he was quite good. And he did have some good starts this year, but he clearly didn't sustain it. Yeah. So that to me was the, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the, the starting rotation, that Cueto, I thought, would probably anchor the starting rotation. And that clearly w- wasn't the case. Yeah, I think early in the season, too, as sort of Kapler was getting the feel for things, it felt like there was a string of starts where he was leaving Cueto in for one batter or one inning too long perpetually. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's true. I could understand why he fell for that because he did look very close. Like it, it you were watching it, and you could see we're like he's almost looking like you know the the Cueto pre Tommy John of pre his struggles in the Giants uniform. You know, not necessarily quite mm-hmm. to the 2016 Cueto that was you know arguably a Cy Young candidate, peripheral Cy Young candidate, but you know looking like a really good pitcher. But then it just he couldn't put put guys away as easily. You could tell, you know, the velocity I think is a bit down. The movement's probably not quite as much there. But you could tell it's just the command just to that elite level that it was when he was at his best. Yeah, I uh, I, I agree. I think the velocity, while it wasn't where it was a few years ago, I think his velocity, though I was pleasantly surprised that it wasn't bad. And given that kind of pitcher he is with his changeup, uh, in particular that it the issue was more the command. As a matter of fact, I was reading something the other day. Among starting pitchers who qualified, he had the second lowest percentage of first strikes, of first pitch strikes. And that to me is something that that's correctable. Again, it gets gets back to command and whether it's throwing his fastball more, he was throwing his changeup a lot and he was having you know trouble commanding that. So hitters would stay off that. So that was a disappointment, I think, going forward into next season. I expect to see some improvement from him, and he could be one who has a solid year, and and he might be tradable near the All-Star break next year, again, in part because he would be a rent, rental for a team. But I think in terms of a player performance that that was um, – I, I expected more from him, and particularly since he was, for the most part, healthy. I know he had some – I think he missed a start or two – near the end of the season. I think he had some hip soreness or something to that effect. But the fact that he was healthy through the season, that that was a disappointment. You saw him approach it. You saw him get near it. But it felt like things just never quite clicked into gear for him, I think is sort of the best way of putting it. um, So shifting away from the Giants quickly, we'll definitely circle back before we wrap up. But I know you have thoughts on... Major League rule changes, of course, there were sort of four big ones, right? You had the expanded playoffs we touched on a bit, the designated hitter in the National League, the three batter minimum for pitchers, 
and then in extra innings, the runner on second base to start the inning. I'll let you loose. You can go at whichever one first you'd like to, and I'll try to wrangle you from there. Okay, well, let's start with the ones that I I can live with. Uh, The DH, and again, I think just for purposes of continuity, while I would prefer to watch baseball without the DH, having two different rules in two different leagues makes no sense. So I hope the commissioner and the owners agree to that the DH is permanent and it's across, across both leagues, not just because the, you know, the Giants benefited from that, that they had productive DHs, but ju- just for the continuity. The um, three batters are that for pitchers to face a minimum of three batters, you know, it, unless they come in and they finish off the inning. That one, the jury's still out. I would want to see, and I don't think we can really assess it in this shortened season, my understanding was part of the motivation for that was to cut down on pitching changes, and I'm not convinced that that rule does that. Now, because of the shortened season, um, starting pitchers were on shorter, you know, on lower pitch counts, I think, to start the season for many teams. So there may have been more pitching changes due to that. So I would like to see them give that one more year to bring that back in the 162-game season, but monitor the number of pitching changes and if it doesn't have that much of an impact, then I say get rid of it. If it's not, you know, in essence, shortening games or reducing the number of pitching changes, then I, I say then let managers, you know, if they want to bring in a pitcher for, for one batter and then bring in another one, then let them do that. Because that's only likely to happen in high leverage situations anyway. Yeah, I, I also agree with that. I think sort of building off it, we've discussed this quite a bit as well. It's Again, I don't really buy into Manfred's sort of logic and argument that games are too long. That's why interest is down in some demographics. I think if there's any problem with baseball in terms of a marketing standpoint, it's how they're marketing and who they're marketing it to. You know, I think it, it, it very much is, you know, it's, I do think, you know, useful. There's plenty of ways to criticize the NBA, the NFL, you know, a host of leagues, but Major League Baseball seems to be the only one that in like its active public discourse is very critical of its own product, right? Like mm-hmm. the NBA and NFL, you know, outsiders will be critical, you know, you know, writers or pundits will have comments, but the league itself, you know, Roger Goodell or Adam Silver are generally not out here saying the way the game is played is problematic. If anything, they're defending it. They're saying, you know, right. the game's changed for the better, right? And, and I think it is just a stark thing for Manfred to be so out and openly critical in this sense. I don't think it had too much material impact on games. And so I kind of wonder why it's there similarly, but yeah, I agree. It is somewhat innocuous. Yeah. I'm not convinced as say, even if they were to, and this certainly won't happen, but even if they were to shorten the average length of a game, 25 minutes, I'm not convinced that that would make that much of a difference. Mm -hmm. Uh, To me, it's what goes on in part during the game. One of the things that, struck me this year in part because I was able to watch virtually every giant game because of COVID I was home, you know, teaching remotely and so forth is that the amount of time that batters step out of the box, it's little things like that, that I found myself even getting frustrated in terms of of picking up the pace of the game. And umpires have a right to, you know, not grant the guy, you know, stepping out of the box. But as I say, that to me is, is a minimal sort of thing. You're not going to make baseball games, you know, 45 minutes in length and to shave off a 
a, f- a few minutes to me isn't going to make a big deal in the demographics that are interested in, in, in watching it. Yeah. But I'm willing to say, uh, let's try it again for an, another full season and then as- assess if it does accomplish, you know, what the commissioner wants. But as I say, shaving off a few minutes to me is, isn't worth it, especially when the if you have, you know, to constrain a manager where he's not bringing in his best pitcher in that situation to be constrained by that particular thing, uh, yeah. th- that rule. Agreed. So I think now we're moving with the expanded playoffs and extra inning. These are your, I'd say, uh, less positive thoughts on these. Well, l- let's start with the seven inning double header because oh, that's okay. one that um, I actually like that, but I would like that only if it's done for reasons. See, I'm less interested in shortening the length of games than I am in shortening the length of the season. And when I say the length of the season, I don't mean fewer games. I mean fewer days because um, I think it hurts baseball when it overlaps too much in the football season. And, you know, when we get World Series games in late October or even kind of creep into November, I would like to see um, I don't want to see all seven inning baseball games. But I think the doubleheader, I would like to see that use where every team plays one doubleheader a month and it's a seven inning doubleheader. They can expand the roster to have one pitcher like they've done in the past. But I would only like to see that if they use that to reduce the length of the season by six days. Because if you had scheduled in double headers, you can shorten and pick up sort of six days. So the season would get a little bit shorter um, in terms of, you know, when the season wraps up. So that would be where I would agree to that. Not. You know, if they're going to do makeup double headers because of rainouts, I'm I'm not opposed to that. But I'd like to see them take advantage of that to actually have scheduled double headers once a month to shorten the season um, by by six days. And you know what my more radical proposal is as well is that the All Star Game shouldn't be played in July. It's now a four day break. To me, you lose continuity of the season. Why not get fans interested in voting on the all-star team in February and March and have the all-star game like five or six days before opening day? So this way the fans could see the players that they're most excited about open the season with the all-star game and have that five or six day break so that no pitchers, you know, no teams are disadvantaged by having one of their pitchers, you know, pitch an inning or two in the all-star game. That would save you another three or four more days. And I think you could shorten the season where we're getting playoffs and World Series are starting 10 days at least before they're starting now. Yeah, and I think the All-Star Game one's a good point, too, because it's placement with where guys have contract incentives. I mean, arbitration, you know, you're going to make more money if you have an All-Star appearance and we're only basing it off half of the season, right? Like, or I guess two thirds, but voting starts so early. It's if a guy has a, if a player has a strong second half and a weak first half, they might be better and more deserving. We've seen this plenty of times. I mean, the popularity contest elements are always probably going to be there. Yeah. I'm okay with that. It's ultimately for the fans, but you know, the other thing about doing it, I think I'm with you on doing it preseason or as a start to the season, especially in years where you're not having the world baseball classic is that you have a whole season of stats to base it off of. And so you, you have that. Exactly. Comparison. Yeah. And I, yes. And I say this, you know, in part every season, the way the all-star game is set up now, we get players voted on that have hardly played, right? Because yeah. they got injured. Mm-hmm. And then you end up having, they either appear in some cases, they come off the DL and then they appear and they're having a bad season. So like you say, that doesn't work. Whereas 
a lot of fans would be boating on the previous season, you know, mm-hmm. the MVP and so forth. Um, most are likely to be healthy because teams are pretty protective of their players in the preseason. So the chances are you're going to see a lot of those best players. And then the second thing, as simply a fan, I hated to have giant pitchers in the All-Star game because I didn't want them to pitch. And especially if I was in, in a pennant race, if, you know, Bumgarner goes in and pitches, then maybe he's, you know, slot gets gets pushed back. And even for a reliever, that's another appearance. Whereas I like it, if you do it at the beginning of the year, then all the pitchers who appear in that All-Star game are going to get plenty of rest. I think it's a great marketing thing, too, to start the season, because you can imagine baseball showing these highlights from the previous year's season of guys hitting homers and how they're going to we're going to start off the season with the best players that you're going to see. Also, the home run hitting contest, too, right at the beginning of the season. That, to me, would get fans excited seeing these guys hit home runs. And then, you know, the season's going to start in a few days. Yeah. But anyway, I don't think they're going to listen to us. But I actually think that that from purely a marketing and promotional point of view, that that could be marketed very well. And it shortens the season in terms of the number of days. that The season gets a bit more compact. And I think baseball suffers from the fact that the season is so long and just shaving roughly two weeks off the length of the season, but still getting the same number of games, fans still getting an all-star game would be good for the sport overall. Mm-hmm. And things that you don't think are good for the sport overall. I can't. Yeah, this runner at second base. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that one's got to go. Um, yeah, first of all, this notion that now, again, I understand it in the shortened seasons, you know, with rosters and anyway, my problem uh, with with that is if it's anything about marketing, the problem isn't with extra innings. If fans aren't interested in baseball, they're not going to watch the first nine innings in the first place. So the idea that, oh, OK, I'm going to stay and watch the 10th inning because it's going to you know they're going to put a guy at, at, at second base. I suppose I'm a traditionalist. I don't like the fact that a runner gets on base, not through any efforts of their own. It also, I think, and it re, teams should be rewarded for having deep bullpens and such. And if they take our advice and shorten the season a little bit, they can probably maybe have a couple more off days or days if they wanted to do that to, to rest pitchers. Uh, and such, such such like that. But no, I don't like the idea of you put a guy in second base, you can bunt that person over to third, and then they score on a fly ball. Um, and and that could be a walk-off, let's say, for, for, for the home team. There aren't that many games that go 19 or 20 innings that chew up a bullpen. So that one I would like to see disappear. I could understand if they want to use it in the minor leagues because they're concerned about pitch counts, you know, with minor league pitchers, but but not in the big leagues. I, I don't like that one at all. And it's not just because the Giants lost quite a few games with that particular thing. I just don't think it's it's good for the sport overall. Well, I think it frustrates you because there's just kind of a level of randomness that it's annoying to you. Well, as as a good buddy of mine, uh, said and again he's a traditionalist like me it's that why stop there why put a runner on second base make the bases loaded with nobody out and then we can see who can score the most runs it's just as i say the number of games that go that long uh, that to me is too radical a change for an event that doesn't happen happen all that often you know which was these um 
really lengthy extra inning games. Mm. I would argue the problem is with those nine inning games that go four hours. That's a bigger issue than the the extra inning game. And generally, I mean, it depends on why those are, though, right? Like, again, we know that Major League Baseball has manipulated the ball to have more home runs. Like, well, home runs are going to lengthen games, you know, like a 15 to 10 game is going to take forever because you're going to have pitching changes and deep at bats and all these things. So I I agree. I think it's clear that baseball doesn't have a lot of consistency or is acting with a certain level of hypocrisy on a lot of issues, but it's especially where, well, if you want games to be longer or shorter, then you should probably be making rule changes to help pitchers. Now, again, I'm not saying I, I care about either of those things, but it's just like, if you're doing one, doing the opposite on the other end is running is counterintuitive to what your supposed goal is. Yeah. And and I, I, I mean, we've, talked about this if there's if they want to do a radical change if one they could experiment with and i think you brought this one up and this was one that was an actual rule at one time mm-hmm. is that maybe hitters shouldn't have an unlimited number of foul balls right um you know maybe once you get to two strikes maybe they only get two foul balls so once you get to two strikes you know with your second foul ball then that's strike three and that may sound radical but that was actually the rule at one time wasn't it well, it's actually the other way around. It used to be that a foul ball wasn't anything. It, if it was a the first pitch of an at-bat, I fouled it off. The count was still 0-0. Zero, zero. Oh, okay. And there was one guy who got so good at fouling balls off, he'd just do it essentially in perpetuity mm-hmm. until he felt like he could guarantee a hit. And so that's when it became, if you foul it off, it counts as a strike for the first two strikes. And today, with I mean, granted, pitchers have better stuff, but... Guys are also hitting more foul balls and because of the better stuff, because they're swinging for home runs, you know, and all these other things. So um, I don't think it's out of the question. You know, they've done it before, right? They said, well, these foul balls are kind of not good for the game. We're going to make them count as strikes to disincentivize it. Maybe it's worth considering doing something else to make it um, to take it to another level. Right. Yeah. And also, I mean, in fairness to pitchers, a foul ball to me that's a success for a yeah. pitcher, but it's not, I mean, you know, once you get beyond two strikes, that's actually, it's, it's turning it to the hitter's advantage mm-hmm. and the batter is in essence getting another, is getting another strike for not putting the ball in play, right? right. And not putting it in, in fair, fair territory. But I, I mean, to me, I, that, I would like to, you know, experiment with something like that. I'm not saying it, it would work, but I'd rather see that kind of experiment than just to reduce the number of extra inning games going beyond the 10th inning. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, I, and again, I, I don't like the idea of a runner being on base through no efforts of their own. You know, they didn't walk, they didn't, there wasn't even a, a defensive error. You just put a guy on second base. I just have problems with that. Yeah. So switching back to the Giants. Well, can, can I say before, before we get there, can I comment on the, the, the new playoff structure? Oh, yeah. Go, no, go for it. Go for it. Um, I'm afraid that, you know, they're going to get all excited. The owners are because of the TV revenue with all these playoffs. And first of all, when you have 162 game season, I think the whole point is that that should filter out, you know, the best teams. But I just want to say this. I'll keep this short. If they're going to move forward with this expanded playoff, I really have a problem with that the t- there's not a big incentive for the team with the best record in the league. In other words, the Dodgers, what did they get for having the best record in the National League? They still had to play in the first round, and they got to play Milwaukee, what, instead of playing 
uh, I'm the Cardinals of the Reds, that if they're going to move forward, I really would like to see that the team with the best record get a bye in a first round, or even maybe the two best division winners get a bye in the first round, and then you let these wild cards in the second place teams play. Um, and I think the article was written, you had mentioned it uh, this morning when we talked, who wrote the article about the uh, win probability? I know Dan Simborski over at Fangraphs had some tweets where he talked about, he might have turned in an article, but I know he wrote about how the current system it encourages behavior like what the Red Sox did trading Mookie bets. Yeah, and, and others. And what I recall from that is that if this current system is set up and such, if I can win 85, 86 games, I make the playoffs. I don't have an incentive for like going out and signing that next big free agent to put me over the top where maybe we could win 95 games mm-hmm. yeah. and win the division. Because if you think about right, the current structure, since there's no buys, you know, the fact is in a best of three series, the probabilities of either team winning, it's it's you know, it's kind of a coin flip, right? It's it's closer to that. Then, right, the difference between the Giants and Dodgers over a 162-game season is going to be more stark than in a best-of-three right. series, right? And and so the incentive—if you're an 85-win team, you're almost guaranteed to make the postseason. Even, and if you're a 90-win team, you're insured to pretty right. much make the postseason. And so there's no reason if you're outside of just wanting to be good, right, outside of essentially, you know, like a George Steinbrenner who just really desires winning— Mm-hmm. And we're seeing fewer and fewer owners who seem to, by the way, be acting with that kind of mindset. Um, outside of that, there's really not a lot of incentive because for most owners, the money is in making the postseason. Right. It, there's the, and how much money are you willing to invest to you know, make it to the second round of the playoffs rather than the first or even to win a championship versus losing in the, the championship series? That difference – isn't very much. Yeah. And I think many of the um, analytically oriented organizations and particularly some of the, the new whiz kids that have been hired in part, they've been brought into teams that were around that 80 win thing. And the idea is to get from 85 wins into that 90 some wins. So you could win a division or at least make the wild card, which is still relatively competitive under the old, the old system. And if, again, as we saw, look, well, the Houston Astros didn't even play 500. They came in second place. Yep. And you can see with this structure, I mean, some of these, you know, um, and Milwaukee was Milwaukee. Milwaukee was below 500. Below 500. Yeah. That's right. They had the yep. tiebreaker. On, on the, the Giants game. would have made the playoffs if they were 500, which is still yeah. not particularly impressive either. Yeah. I, I suppose a compromise would be the old system. Ten teams made the playoffs, right? Mm-hmm. Five in each league. Yes. Under this experimental season, so to speak, we had 16. That's Mm -hmm. too many. I think I could live with 12, Mm -hmm. you know, that only division winners, well, first division winners. And then if you wanted to have three wild cards, which would be the three best record, you know, the next three best records, something to that. And the other thing you could do, actually, that's basically similar to the NFL format, right? right? And I think there's something to be said for, too, in the NFL format, right? The two best records get a bye. Yes, and then you have the next two, which in baseball would be one division winner and the best wild card team mm-hmm. yep. would be at home against the other two wild card teams. And I think that's 
I, I actually don't disagree. I think that's probably a, a system I'd be okay with if you want to expand the playoffs. And I also think there's an argument to be made, too. We should expand the divisional series to seven games before we're adding teams. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, that, that, would, that would be reasonable. And as I say, if, if you – and I like your suggestion, as I say, where you'd get the two best division winners record-wise would get buys. It also, since you have three wild cards, that's going to keep quite a few teams in it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not quite as, I guess, liberal as this current the system we did this season with every second place team plus two others. But it seems a reasonable compromise. And would baseball, your people want to see sort of, you know, dynasties, really good, t- yeah. good teams. And so you want to see teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees, whether you know you like them or not, but spending big money to be super teams. And I think if they continued what they've experimented with this season, there'll be less of an incentive to do that. I mean, even in the NBA, right, there's not that much. Yeah, if you have the best record there, it's for home field advantage, right? Oftentimes, that's why NBA teams, you want to have the best record mm-hmm. in your conference because yeah. you want the home court. Well, home field advantage probably means the least in baseball, right, compared to the other two sports. And, you know, if I have a good pitching staff, you know, I'm not that worried about not having a home field defense. So I I, I would definitely, yeah, I could expand the division series and then have, again, add another, you know, wild card team to that, but give buys for a first round. I think that would be a, a fair compromise between, you know, for the television networks to get more playoff games. The owners, with their greed, you know, they want more money. But at the same time, it doesn't so undermine, you know, really. I mean, what's the purpose of having a 162-game season, right, if 16 teams make the playoffs? It just yeah. um, it, it seems excessive. Yeah. So anyway, that was just my comments on, on that. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a good point. I think it's fair, right? We're, we're seeing this, this. I mean, we know this labor dispute is going to be nasty, right? Like, we mm-hmm. see this coming, and we've seen it coming for a while now. And I think there's a fair counter argument that some people are making that owners have shown their cards they're going to be cheap regardless of what the system is now and i think that's not necessarily unreasonable Mm -hmm. but i do think there is something to be said for the fact is most of these teams are run by your mckinsey style economic analysts who are doing marginal revenue and marginal cost analysis, right? They're looking at, and that means there's guys crunching numbers on how many dollars is each win worth to the franchise. Mm -hmm. And I do think playoff system is going to impact how those calculations go even marginally. Now I agree on a surface philosophically, things are going to have to change in organizations for there to be too big an effort, but this does just encourage that behavior to an even worse degree. Um, But that we went on for a while about those things. I'm glad we did, though. I mean, we've been talking about this sort of all season. I think it's worth discussing in detail. But back to the Giants. Zaidi, this is going to be his third off season, and going to his third season at the helm. Kapler, his second year as manager, barring any surprises either way. How do you feel about the Giants organization going forward? Well, I, I feel um, quite confident and positive with regard to Zaidi. Um, and his staff in terms of player development, uh, less so about Kapler, but we're stuck with him. And I think, I mean, the good news is, is that managers probably mean, you know, less than head coaches in football and, and others. So I'm confident in terms of the way Zaidi has, you know, um, built our farm system. I will give credit for Kapler. It does appear that 
the coaching staff, some of the people that he brought in. Um, I, I'd want to see it over 162 game season, but I think some credit probably needs to go with regard to the coaching staff with regard to how good our offense was and in terms of hitters improvement. I mean, we'll mm-hmm. see if that can, that can carry over. Moving forward, what I hope and I think Zaidi will do is that next year isn't going to be our year. What I mean is we're not going to challenge the Dodgers or Padres for winning the division. And that's really the hardest part, right, is that they're, this division is looking like it's going to be a gauntlet. I mean, I, I think the Rockies are kind of destined for cellar mm-hmm. dweller, just they've made some, frankly, bad moves from a front office perspective. But I thought the Diamondbacks had some bad luck this year. Now, Bumgarner, he could be done, but I do think they have some a young nucleus there that could be competitive. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, the Dodgers and Padres look like they're both going to be juggernauts for some time yeah now it and again it's possible to say they do expand the playoff system or wild mm-hmm. cards so that's so i'm not saying that we won't be competitive in, in some way but i say that because um i do think we should make an effort at least on the short term to bring back smiley gaussman yeah, yeah i'm sorry sorry gaussman slips just my mind not to break the bank whether it's to bring them back i would actually you probably will disagree with this. I would be tempted to offer Gausman a tender. A yeah, he might offer. accept that at $17 million, He's right? He's 19 this year, so he. Okay. Pro- I'd be surprised if he didn't accept it, but yeah. So he would accept it. It's not like, look, uh, the Giants can afford it. Mm-hmm. And the reason I, I mention that, I, I state that, is um, because some team, again, there could be some teams who might, want to give them a multi-year deal right and then we might get some some compensation but in either case we probably won't do that i think we should certainly make some effort to try to retain him and smiley but i would be hesitant to give anything i prefer a two-year deal uh, a three-year deal that's fairly team friendly and i say that because as much as i like the way both of them pitched i don't think we're going to be really competitive probably for two seasons maybe three and i don't know if they would be around during that time yeah i think i mean i've been adamant even early on this season i remember asking Kerry crowley soon after i was on his podcast i said would you if gaussman's agent calls you and says three years 45 million dollar extension right now do you do it and he said probably not and i think it was fair but i think over the course of the season He's we'll see what the market is. I mean, again, so much is unknown because we don't know how teams are going to handle having a season where they have the excuse of being able to, you know, they do have far less revenue this year than they've had in the past. Now, they all also have the capability to spend. That's a part they're not going to say. But I don't know. I think a three year 45, I think a three years 40 would be a fair deal. And I think it, it would be something that I think would fit the team. I'm kind of a bit disagree I do disagree with you a bit on the window in that I think the Giants kind of have to ignore the presence of the Padres and Dodgers because the reality is I don't think unless Marco Luciano becomes their Tatis Jr., you know, unless Joey Bart becomes Buster Posey 2.0 or like Mike Zanino who can hit for batting average, they aren't going to catch those teams with what we have right now from what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. It's just those teams have such – incredible amounts of big league talent, minor league talent. You just have to act from the perspective of I'm trying to compete next year. We need to put the best team on the field within reason um, of our own constraints. And so I think Gaussman does that. And 
I'm not too worried about a third year at 15 million. Like this team has so much money coming off the books, you know, even if it was a three year 60, which again, I don't think is in the cards. I don't necessarily think I'd even have to be feel pressured to offer that, but it's like, ultimately, even if it was a dud of a deal, like Samarja is coming off the books this year, Cueto, Belt, Longoria, Posey are about to come off the books. And given the farm system, it's, it looks like a lot of those guys you're going to be able to let walk or even if you're going to bring them back are going to be cheaper. So I think you can afford to overpay a bit for someone like Gaussman. Smiley, I do kind of agree in part because I think Smiley himself is going to want more of a prove it deal because I think he, you know, if he can do something close to what he did this year over a full season, he's looking at a pretty bigger, big payday where I think this is probably about the ceiling for what Gaussman's going to do barring something exceptional next season. Well, no, I, I agree with you, but that's why, I'm willing to overpay with the tender. Mm. I guess I would rather offer the Gaussman the tender of 19 million. He accepts it. Then you don't have to worry about negotiating essentially. Yeah. And, and, and if he accepts it, he accepts it. And that's great. We got him for one year. Yeah. That that's probably technically an overpay. If he has another good year, we'll be back in the same situation again, where we could offer him an extended contract. Well, if we feel like oh, yeah, being yeah. Com- mm-hmm. competitive rather than, you know, lock him into even a 40, $45 million deal. So anyway, I think it would also send a message that whether we sign him to a multi-year deal or, or, or tender him, let's just say, which I doubt that that will do. I guess I don't like hearing at this point with the giants, as you say, some arches coming off the books and such that I'm really not, particularly sympathetic to them about, you know, talking about finance that they can yeah, afford to do it a tender of 19 million because our starting rotation, you know, going back, what's our biggest need? It's a problem. And it's a particularly a problem if Gaussman and Smiley don't come back. Now we can then go out on the market, but you know, how much do you think Marcus Stroman's going to cost us? Right. So that's why I'm not, you know, if we, and now I guess, I saw what is it? Um, is it Minor with the A's? Mike Minor. Yeah, he might be one. You know, he's 32 years old. That we can bring him in, like on a Gaussman deal. Mm-hmm. Okay, we can do that. But um, I think bringing back, you know, Gaussman, I would make it a priority. One year at 19 million is a is a better financial investment than a longer term term contract. But either way, because if we don't. Um, that starting rotation is going to be pretty shaky because the only and other even name- if you do, I mean, even if you do bring Gaussman and Smiley back, there's a lot of questions. I mean, oh, absolutely. I mean, I I do believe that Cueto, if for no other reason than one, he's another year removed from his Tommy John. He's going to be a free agent at the end of next year. I think Cueto will be better. I don't know. Um, I think Anderson, we have him under team control, I, or I think um, arbitration. Yeah, if to me, they, yeah, he could be a non-tender back. candidate, but yeah, I think. Yeah, probably. I mean, I think he, um, we can retain him relatively cheaply, and I think you know he turned out to be a, again, he's a he's a he's a four guy in a rotation, maybe a five guy, but um, you know, in terms of young pitchers. The only one you hear mentioned, like BD, well, I'm not convinced. You know, BD wasn't great. <laughs> when he was healthy mm-hmm. and coming back. And we really have nobody at the triple a level, right? Yeah. Jelly was kind of a guy who you're thinking if he got that season at triple a this year, he could have been a September right. call up, you know, but he didn't. And, and I'm, I'm open if he looks really good in, in, in camp, assuming, you know, we, we have a full season and a full camp, you know, mm-hmm. next year, 
But uh, that that starting rotation, you know, really needs to be if we don't bring back at least, you know, or even Trevor Cahill. And again, I think Cahill is best as sort of a swing guy um, where occasional start like, you know, when we have those double headers or we don't have off days, not to assume we can bring back Cahill and, you know, just put him in in the rotation. So that's what I like. At the same time, I would hope that we're open and flexible to looking to possibly trade some of our guys that might have some value, although I think the trademark is going to be limited, to try to get some starting pitchers in our system at double A AA or triple A. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I don't know who, who that would be, you know, as much as I, I've liked them and I've always liked them. If we can pick up a nice chunk of Belt's contract and maybe you know, somehow, you know, now would be the time because Belt and Crawford, I doubt if we'll bring them back after next season. I mean, I suppose it's it's possible. And I realize they both have, well. Crawford has, has a full a, no trade clause. Belt right. does only have a partial yeah, no well, trade clause. I, so. Yeah, but I, and it doesn't have to necessarily be, be, be one of them. I mean, uh, so again, I would hope that the Giants and Zaidi, and I think they will, will look towards really building towards the future to be competitive. We've shown we, we were competitive this year. And I think we can still do that, but we got to bring back Galsman or Smiley or some combination or bring in another veteran and so forth. I mean, I think it's fair to say at a minimum, you need to bring in one guy of a Galsman tier, meaning you saw him be an effective mid-rotation or better starter this year, and you can trust him to do that next year. A guy like Smiley, who you're fairly confident can at least be a back-of-the-rotation guy, and you probably need someone else for insurance just because, again, you really have nothing right now that you necessarily can count on. Again, I like Logan Webb. I'm high on Logan yeah. Webb. But he still is ultimately a prospect who's had flashes and struggles. You know, Tyler Anderson, ultimately a yeah. guy who's you know not someone you're necessarily – you know if you need him every five days – you know, that's not necessarily the best proposition if he's your second or third best starter in Cueto we already talked about. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's definitely yeah. the biggest offseason. And, and I do think, uh, um, to cut you off, and mm-hmm. I'll let you get back in here, but I think the way to approach starting pitching is probably not going to be through getting prospects. The way to approach starting pitching is probably going to be what teams are trying to be cheap, are trying to cut payroll, have maybe a solid starting pitcher making somewhere from 10 to 20 million, but they're willing to move him for some prospects. I think that this may be the off season where the giants are seeing, all right, we now Zaidi's had enough time. This roster is his, this organization depth the whole way through the minor leagues is pretty much his. And we're going to start coming up on those 40-man runster crunches that he was taking advantage of to get guys mm-hmm. like Joe McCarthy, to get guys like Louis Basabe recently, right? Well, now the Giants are going to be soon in a position where those guys are going to be – they're going to have to be moving those guys. And I, I think we could see him trying to be preemptive in trying to move those guys. You know, last year, right, they took on Zach Cozart's contract to get a prospect like Will Wilson. I wouldn't be shocked if we see that again. But instead of getting Will Wilson, you know, you're you're targeting maybe a slightly overpaid, competent starting pitcher or you're getting, you know, something to that degree. I think that's probably more of where they're, they'd probably be able to take advantage of. And free yeah, I, I, agree. I think I would like to see them do that. Not this coming off season, the next off season. OK. And, and that's because in part, you know. When Belt and Crawford are gone, in that sense, we have um, that should free, free up plenty of money. 
and I'm sure Zaidi is, is looking at, you know, where pitchers are on other teams, where's their contracts and so forth. And as I say, the Giants have plenty of money that and again, with starting pitching, you almost are always going to overpay. But mm-hmm. that's just part of the business. So, yeah, I have no problem with that. I think we have enough prospects that if we could bring someone in, but I would like it to be someone that's, you know, mm-hmm. in their late 20s as opposed to someone that's in their early 30s. You know, if we're, if we're going to yeah. uh, trade trade some prospects, because as I say, I think our window is probably two years, not not next season. Yeah. Well, that is my father, Dr. Michael DeLuke, retired professor of sociology. There's not really any place to follow him, but he's my father. I wanted to get him on to talk about Giants baseball. Thank you for joining us for the first episode in this rendition of Sound the Foghorn. We'll be talking all the biggest happenings around Major League Baseball and your San Francisco Giants every Sunday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to stay up to date throughout the week, follow Around the Foghorn on Facebook or Twitter at Round the Foghorn. Shoot me a follow on Twitter at Maddeluki. That's M-A-D-D-E-L-U-C-C-H-I. Until next Sunday, have a wonderful week. episode was produced and hosted by Mark DeLuke. All the music is courtesy of the Free Music Archive. The intro was pure adrenaline.